Please give me. I like to look at the oxidizing pictures. And that's where I don't know if some of you noticed there were these little pictures. And the last one was a bit topsy turvy. I'm sorry about that. And I wanted to do this tonight at the end of the retreat because, in a way, it's kind of a little of a summary of uh, our journey on the path. So I just wanted to kind of look at the various uh, stages. Because in a way it's a meditative path in picture. And so they have the, the little drawing you have seen. I mean there are many different types of drawings, but that's one type. And so I just each drawing as a title and then I just want to go through them and kind of look at it very much in terms of an, our own life, our own experiences. And then hopefully I'll have time for the various questions. And the first picture, so the story is of Oxerda, a little guy or girl, and he's looking, for the, he's looking for the ox. So the first one is called Searching for the Ox. And so he's kind of looking. And I think this picture is very much about, in a way, maybe we could say before we start on the path, as we kind of have this kind of inkling that in a way, there is a little tension, there is a little unease, there seems to be something missing. And so in a way, we seem to look everywhere. It's like a little oxford looking, you know, where can I find this cow, this ox? And in a way, you don't really know where to look. And so you cannot try this, try that. And I think this can be when we're kind of young, looking for something, and we don't know what really. Or it can happen later on. I can think of um, a friend of ours who had a very kind of rich and varied life. And she was the daughter of a well-known composer and came from a very wealthy family. And then suddenly, 55 years old, she decided to go to India and to study with the Dalai Lama and became a nun at 55 and lived in this kind of like, you know, shed in uh, the Himalayas, which was such a different thing. So I think it's not that we necessarily young. We, it's kind of at the moment where we suddenly feel something is missing. And so we're looking around. The next picture, the little oxider suddenly see some footprint. There is some footprint on the path. And in a way, I think it's when we start to feel that maybe that for ourselves, what is missing is something spiritual, that we kind of need something. And so in a way we look for traces, we look for ideas in books, in poetry. And I can remember for myself, when I was 18 and started to be interested in this thing, you know, and I would read, you know, read this kind of uh, Zen poems, you know, like, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. And you thought, wow, this is profound. You know, and seeing like this. And so in a way, there is something that you feel that you kind of, you might not totally know the meaning of it, but we feel some connection, we feel some kind of resonance within us. And I think at that level, the traces, what we can ask ourselves, are they old or new? Are they relevant or not? Can we apply this or not? Because I know for myself, when I was 18, and at the time what was 
There is not so much spirituality as now. And one thing which was there was Krishnamurti. So I got the book of Krishnamurti, and it was about awareness, to be aware. So I took the book and I went up to the mountain, fasting for three days, mm-hmm. just a blanket. Because then I thought, like, you know, then it's very easy. I don't have to carry anything and food and anything. So I just went to the mountain. And I would kind of, you know, for a whole day I spent in a meadow, very beautiful meadow in the Alps, and I would be sitting there. And I would read the book, and then I would look, be aware. And I did this for a whole day, and it did not make a difference whatsoever to the quality of my life. So I gave it up. I kind of, you know, went back down the mountain. So in a way, in a way we find lots of things, but not necessarily the one, in a way that we've clicked. So we try, we kind of have intimation. Then the next one, which is a lovely one, is seeing the ox, but seeing the ox tail. So in a way you just see the bottom with the tail of the ox. So there you've seen something, but it's only again a big brief. You see the, the bottom here, the bottom there. And I think, in a way, it's when we try to go beyond the words we find in the poetry, in the books, and we try to practice. And then we start to encounter all these different paths, all these different methods. And in a way, we have to find for ourselves in a way one which works. Something that fits us, something that we're inspired by, something that is meaningful, something that is beneficial. And I can remember for myself, first I tried hyperventilating naked in the, with all the people, a la Rashmish, and I must say, I did not find it that it was very successful. <laughs> then I tried Taoism by correspondence, <laughs> where I would have to imagine myself floating in the corner of the room, but I could not really succeed there. So in a way, we try different things, and we have to try them to know, do they work or not, in a way. And even in the Buddhist tradition, you know, I encounter great Tibetan lamas, and for some reason, I did not connect. I went to Thailand, and I thought, you know, people were really interesting, and the teaching was interesting, but I did not like so much the rule about the women, so that was not for me. And then I ended up in Korea. So again, in a way, there are so many different paths. This is what this kind of like, we see something, but we don't really know yet what is it that we can really do. And then the fourth picture is called Catching the Ox. And there, finally, the ox has caught the ox with a lasso, and so he's kind of holding on the rope. But the ox doesn't want to be caught, and so it's kind of there is this kind of really powerful picture of the kind of the oxygen trying to really hold on. And I think to me it's when we really, in a way, finally decide to really do it. And then it's very different from thinking, oh, this is such a lovely poem, to kind of, you know, trying things out, and finally you do it yourself. Because in a way this is a thing with meditation. Nobody can do it for us. So in a way we have to do the meditation ourselves. And Especially at the beginning, it is not easy. 
you sit there and you have pain everywhere and I mean I, I couldn't breathe and you know it, it was it's not easy and then you, your mind you see your mind is all over the place you never knew it was all over the place and in a way you have to stand there you have to kind of in a way stand firm to me this is a picture of great energy and it's very much about that we have kind of cultivated certain habits for many years, 20, 30 years, and just medicating once is not enough. But we really, in a way, have to do this. We really, in a way, have to kind of be firm, have the energy to kind of deal with this whole organic being, how it is in that moment. And I think this picture is very much about that. And then there is the next one, which is tending the ox. And the tending of the ox is interesting because there is an ox, there is an ox herder, and between them there is still the rope, but it's very loose, very soft. So there is no fighting, there is no kind of, it's kind of very, kind of just gentle. And to me it's when, in a way, we become familiar with the practice. In a way, we know what we have to do. Like the Zen master telling me, you know. In a way, there is not so much struggle anymore. It's more kind of you do it steadily. You kind of become familiar with the practice, and really you kind of, you know, go on the way. You know what to do. You know how to do it. But you have to keep a little vigilant. Because I think at that moment, either we get, I think, a little arrogant. And I can remember when I kind of got to that stage to kind of like, you know, people on certain days, we had kind of bath day and we could go for a walk in the monastery and people would come and say, do you want to go for a walk? And I said, no, 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 I meditate. <laughs> I mean, you know, these people, they're poor. I meditate. It's interesting how that you start to be more familiar, you feel quite confident with it, and then there is this little kind of conceit a little arising or you get to a point where it's really difficult it was going really well and you really thought this is it this time I have sorted meditation out this is it and then suddenly it doesn't work whatsoever once I had a period like that in the middle of a three-month retreat where I was really sitting you know like 16 hours a day and really kind of non-stop and really kind of really keen and nothing worked I would sit and I couldn't question and I would fall asleep and I would have thought and I would feel restless, everything. But I couldn't escape because, you know, you just sit there for the three months. You don't have any choices. That's what you do. And so every day I would kind of try and try and finally after two weeks, suddenly listening to a tape talk of a master, then suddenly something clicked. And then the, the, the question went really well. So I think this is in a way that we become more familiar, but still we need a little vigilance. And then there is the sixth one, which is riding the ox back home. And this one is a lovely picture, because you have the ox, there is no rope anymore, and then the ox herder is sitting on top, a stride ox, and he's playing the flute. So a picture of, kind of, in a way, creativity, of lightness. And to me this is very important that meditation is not just kind of like this really hard work all the time. You grit your teeth, 
it's tough, but you know, you've got to do it. I think at some point it has to be easier, lighter, that you, in, in a way, it helps you to feel lighter, to feel more free, to feel more, in a way, that you have more creativity, also that you have, there is more joy. I think this is an essential part of the practice. And I think, in a way, this is a little about the fluidity of the practice. The fact that you can start to be creative with it when you sit, but also in your daily life. And there is this ease, there is this lightness. I think it's when, in a way, there starts to be this humor. And that's what, to me, was very striking about my teacher, Master Cousin, is this lightness, is lightness of being. That you could see him, you know, kind of jumping over the rocks or over the river, and there was a lightness to him. And also, although he was his great master and really respected often, he would be quite funny. I mean, he would kind of make jokes. Like once he had this, um, one of his disciples, an abbot of a little temple, who really harassed him to make a calligraphy for a patron, because the patron was going to give a lot of money. So he needed a calligraphy by the great master. So finally master could say, okay, I'll do this calligraphy. And so, you know, they, they, they grind the ink, they put the paper, and they kind of, you know, start to write the, the calligraphy. And all throughout, the abbot, the disciple, say, be careful here, ah, ah, be careful, ah. You know, all the way through, he guides them. And in the end, the ma- master cousin wrote, because you have to write your name, otherwise it's not worth anything. He wrote the name of the abbot. <laughs> And Harvard was so unhappy because it was worthless in a way. <laughs> but it was showing. So in a way, that's what in a way this uh, picture is about. This kind of lightness, this kind of spaciousness. And then there is a seventh one. And there, the ox has disappeared. So all this work to find the ox, now it's not there anymore. And then you just have a little heart, you have the moon, and you have a little oxherd kind of gazing at the moon. And I think this picture is very much when, in a way, there is no more, it's called forgetting the ox, the person rests alone. And I think that it's when there is no more separation between meditation and daily life. Because I think for a long time we feel, I am meditating. And I think over time, they come a stage where you, the meditation just happens, and it don't just happen in the meditation cushion, but also it happens in our daily life. There is no, no, much, no separation between meditation and our life, between what is spiritual and what is not spiritual. And I think it's when we start, in a way, to have more of that meditative awareness in our daily life, where we kind of can bring what I would nearly call the posture of meditative awareness, this stability, this openness, as we go about in our lives. I think that's what this is about. And then there is a next picture, number eight, and there both the ox and the ox herder are gone. It's called the ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. And what you have is a circle, one of these famous Zen circles. And I think you think, wow, again, all this story and then now nothing, you know. But we have to be careful.
fearful that it's not literally a circle, that we sit in meditation and try to kind of experience that kind of you know, circle type of experience. But I think what this picture is about is very much letting go of the grip, <coughs> letting go of the hold we have on our pattern, on, in a way, we kind of, when we kind of so stuck. We stuck within ourselves, we stuck within our conditions. And when slowly we start to kind of let go of this grip, and we can, of course, experience it in meditative state. I think sometimes that's what we can experience. We sit in meditation and we feel different. But often we, we feel different because we think something extraordinary is happening. Personally, I think nothing extraordinary is happening. I think what is happening is that the grasping is not there. And because of that, we feel extremely differently. We feel our body much softer, much looser. We feel, you know, our mind too much lighter in a way. And there is a kind of ease of resting in the moment. But I think because of the grasping, there is not that tension from the grasping anymore. We're just kind of, in a way, totally fully in the moment, in a spacious way. And I think that's what this is about. This is a state of what they call emptiness, of not I, me, mine, but very much, in a way, experiencing life, ourselves, as this flow of conditions. And it's when we realize we cannot reduce, we cannot define ourselves by any one of the conditions that forms us. That actually, at any given moment, there are so many conditions, inner and outer, in our experience. And we don't stick and reduce ourselves to any one of them there. But then this is not the end of the path, because there is another picture, and it's called returning to the original place. And there, you generally just have a kind of a branch of uh, cherry blossom, or plum blossom, or bamboo, so very much something from nature. And I think this picture is very much about that the emptiness is not the end of the path. But actually, through the emptiness, we actually see that we are not fixed, separate, and solid, but that we're totally interdependent, we're totally interconnected with everything else that is alive. And so that's where we start to see, in a way, we can, without looking deeply, we mentioned already, how if we look into things, we know we don't stay at the surface of things. We kind of look deeper into them, meaning the whole connection that makes them exist. For example, this piece of paper. You've been using quite a lot of this paper, but I mean, it's recycled already once. But you could say, what is this piece of paper? It's nothing. It's just a piece of paper. But if you look into this piece of paper, into how it comes into existence, then we see that actually it started with a seed, which then was watered, and there was the earth, and there was the rain, and the sun, and the tree was grown, and then you had to cut the tree, then you had to make pulp, then you had to make this into a kind of whatever, it became a piece of paper, and then you had to sell it, and everything. I mean, the amount of energy that was required for this piece of paper. I 
is amazing. And everything is the same around us. Everything comes from a myriad condition. A lot of energy has been expended for the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the paper we use, etc., etc. But we take everything for granted, that it should be there. And I can, in a way, just throw it, just use it. And I think this, in a way, returning to the original place is a way looking at what we encounter in a much more in-depth way. And kind of seeing it in a kind of a back a little to that wonderment from the question. And also, Amakita was very keen on that, that everything can teach us. And actually we have to be careful to think, oh, I am a Buddhist, and the Buddhist thing is what is spiritual. I think actually we can find kind of, you know, the wisdom, compassion, kindness, spaciousness in many different places. And our teacher often used to say, look at nature. A bird can teach you the Dharma. Look at the orchid, it can teach you the Dharma. That in a way, everything can be an opportunity to teach us the Dharma. It is not specifically spiritual things, but everything. See, this is what this is about. That actually, in our daily life, when you go back home tomorrow, to kind of, on the train, something can be told to you about the Dharma. When you go back to your home, you know, there is any moment we can learn in the Dharma. Something can, in a way, teach us something. So I think this is also what it is about. And then the last picture is called appearing in the marketplace with gifts. And then here you get somebody you've not seen before. There is this monk, which is a little fat, and he's barefoot, and he's got bags, and the little oxlader has reappeared as his attendant. And in a way, the picture is about, in a way, abundance. The picture is also about skill in means, kind of the gift that you have cultivated through the meditation, through the meditative path, that then you're going to take back to the marketplace. That actually the meditation is not just for yourself. It's not kind of in a way an inner technology <coughs> just to make you feel better. But actually the meditation is to enable you to go more out in the world, to also to adapt to the world, to kind of respond to what is needed from the world. Not so much what you kind of going because often I think we feel of compassion as giving advice. I'm going to tell them what's what, you know. You might go back home and say, you know, meditation, that's what you have to do, which generally is not very well received. <laughs> but I think, you know, in the idea of the bag with the gift, is actually what is the appropriate gift from the appropriate situation. In the kind of barefootedness, there is this ad adaptation to high and low, this kind of flexibility. And also very much this kind of um, bringing this compassion, bringing this, very much this, what I would call, this creative, wise compassion into our daily life. To me, this is very much what this is about, that the acceptance is also about this, the inquiry, the, the, the concentration is to enable us actually to be creatively wise and compassionate as we go about our lives. And to me this is kind of very important. And
if I can just tell a small story in terms because people, I mean, there is various uh, things which I'm going to look at because it deals with this idea of compassion. But personally, I would say in compassion, what is very, there are various kind of, in a way, quality involved. I would say compassion is about feeling with, feeling for. I would say, but at the root of compassion, even before that, there is recognition of the other. That the other exists. That the other you can encounter, you can meet. You are open to the other, where they are. And I remember many years ago, I, as a, one of the daughters of the family, my duty, I proposed myself as, uh, to help in a family situation where my grandma and my nephew were going to be together for a month by themselves. And we all thought this would not work. And so I was asked, since I had the time, to come two weeks in the middle in case war had broken out. And by the time I got there, it was true, war had broken out. And grandma was 85, and the nephew was about 22, and they did not talk to each other anymore after a week together. So I looked at the situation, I heard what they both told me about each other, and then I went to the nephew, and I asked him, do you think that grandma at 80, because I asked him, what's the matter? And he said, I don't like the way grandma does it. And she always tells me to do things this way, that way. Oh, no, I don't like it. And then I said to him, but do you think that grandma can change at age 85? And he thought about it and he said, it is true. At 85, it is unlikely that she is going to change. And he totally changed his vision. He thought, okay, since he's not going to change, then I can, you know, deal with that. Instead of, you know, arguing together so they would change each other. And then, you know, to me, that was radical acceptance. And after that, it was much easier. And what was funny for me was to see him later on, many months later, and my mother having trouble with her mother and saying things, and the nephew saying, but she cannot change. <laughs> and, and in a way, that's what I mean by radical acceptance. That you can, in a way, creatively encounter what is going on here. And so I would say also in compassion, there is, in a way, availability. That we are actually available to the other. We open to the other. In a way, sometimes, even when we don't feel like it, we are available to the other. I would say, you know, compassion has its various elements. Now what I'd like to do is, I'll continue to talk about compassion, but through the various uh, little uh, questions we have, to kind of answer some of the questions which are connected to that. Well, there is this lovely question, lovely kind of little note, and I want to read it all, because I think this is a very good program. And I think whoever wrote this, uh, I think it's good that they do that. So I'm going to read it. Dear Martin, my heart sank last night when you said that we can't like get on with everyone. Sorry if I have misquoted. Yes, relationship of any kind can be sticky, to say the least. 
But I am also aware I don't wish to close my heart to anyone. I don't wish to fix another or myself and restrict any possibility. Every interaction is an opportunity for understanding, for being present, coming afresh with an open heart. This can make way and allow movement to happen, patterns to be broken. Isn't this the law of impermanence? I have witnessed people who really dislike each other become best friends by practicing the above. I am not saying it is always possible for this to happen, though it's amazing what an open heart can do. Thank you. Any comment? My comment first is that I did say that one cannot like everybody. And having lived in community for 16 years, this is just what I would call, uh, what I came to the conclusion of. <coughs> but I would totally agree that one can get on with anybody. To me, this is a very big difference. That's what I learned in community, that actually you don't need to like each other in order to care and respect for each other. To me, that's what I meant. That what often I find, we like people, we like to be with them because they uplift us, they bring us joy, because they make us feel at ease, because they have the same perception that we have. And often we have difficulty with people because they bring us down and because we really don't see eye to eye. But having lived in community, that's what I learned. That actually, I did not like need to see eye to eye, we did not need to have the same perception, but we could care for each other. But what was necessary to care for each other was actually the fact that we lived together. I have lived with 11 people together, and if you live day in and out with people, you cannot but if you bring awareness to it, you get to know them. If you get to know anybody generally, you care for them. And to me, that's what is beautiful about people who live in community, even if they don't, do not really like each other, or see eye to eye, that you see them three years later and you feel, yeah, it's so nice to see you again. And why is it nice to see you again? Because I know you. Because in a way, being together in that way, I open to you. And that's what I mean by recognition, that you meet the, the other and you don't see the other through your own self-centeredness, but actually you know the other from where they are at. And you accept them as they are. You might not enjoy everything they are, but you can be with that. To me, this is what I meant. That actually, yes, I would say we can care for everybody. In the same way that this person is saying, we can open to everybody. Though at the same time, of course, we have to be careful. But sometimes we have to protect ourselves. I'm sorry, I say this because I have, I was, when I was in England, I was a trustee of a, a home for battered women. And if you work in the field of battered women, you're very aware that, you know, sometimes you can't just be open to everybody. You know, you have to get out. So in a way, that's why I'm saying that. One can care 
one can be open, but again, there is wisdom. I think this is very central, the wisdom within the compassion. Then there is another note that was to Stephen, but I can address it. Given the need to let go of dependence on others, what is the place of love and other strong bonds between people in Buddhism? And personally, I think here I would make a difference between non-grasping and dependence. Personally, I think if we are in relationship with someone, that it be a family member, that it be a partner, a child, a friend, I think there is a difference between grasping at somebody. When we grasp at somebody, we bring tension to the relationship. Either because it's conditional, either because we want to be with that person all the time, and then in a way kind of we reduce the space around the person and around <coughs> ourselves. But I would say if you are in love with somebody, if you have a loving relationship with somebody and you meet them and you know them, you will depend on each other. You will influence each other. So non-attachment is not about indifference. To me, non-attachment is about non-grasping. So that I encounter the person actually more fully, with, that, with less condition, with more of that acceptance, really meeting the other person. And I would say that at that root of this, in a way, link, born with people, there is appreciation. That I appreciate the people I am connected with, and I also show it to them that I appreciate them. And I'm also conscious that I appreciate them. And that in a way, we do depend on each other because we enjoy each other. But if the person is not there, you can also enjoy being by yourself. You can also appreciate yourself. I think it's very important to in a way look at the whole various aspects of the relationship. And then, this is a little connective, that's why I'm uh, looking at this. Please can you explain, this is about today, where being with things as they are ends and being used by other people begins. That is being like a doormat. And, no, this is, you know, why I, I uh, actually put the phrase the way I did it. I don't know if you noticed. I said, uh, may I know things as they are? May I be with things as they are? May I accept things as they are? May I creatively engage with things as they are? And actually, when I say talk about acceptance, for me, it's actually through acceptance that we really know what is going on. And once we really know what is going on, then we can be creatively engaged with it. So, in this kind of being with things as they are, it is not resignation. You have to be careful. We're not talking about resignation. We're talking about how can I be fully with what goes on? What is positive, what is negative, inside myself, outside myself? How can I creatively engage with that? But often I think what we do when there is a difficult situation is that we wish it, it were otherwise. 
So in a way, we dream of it being otherwise. And often we really don't engage with the situation with how it should be. Instead of really going, okay, what is going on? And if somebody, you feel, if you feel somebody is using you, I would say, check it out. What do you mean that somebody is using you? What do you mean? Do you mean that day in, day out, they kind of, you know, expect things of, of you you don't want to give? Do you mean, what do you mean? To me, this is interesting when somebody says that. I am being used. What does it mean? What, what, what is the situation? So in a way to really know what is going on and to really see what is it I can give, what is it I cannot give. Because I think another aspect of compassion is listening. Listening to ourselves. Listening to others. And that compassion, acceptance is not a blind, kind of a blank check. But that actually there is a spectrum of compassion. Compassion when actually it's required you are other-centered. You really respond, I would say, heroically to the other and forget yourself. Then there is the other spectrum which is when you just can't take care of yourself because you are ill or whatever. You, you, you have to be more compassionate to yourself at that moment. And then there is all this other thing in between, other situations. And so I think it's very important for each of us to look. What does it mean for me to accept things as they are? What does it mean? Because it doesn't mean that you condone everything that everybody does. In the same thing that with these battered women that I used to encounter. You know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of them were there because they got out. Because at one point, in a way, they realized they could not be in this situation. It was damaging, it was hurtful, it was... So they had to get out. And some of them, the ones who were on the track, what I found very inspiring is that they decided to creatively engage with that, to help other women to get out of such situations. So that they got out of themselves and then they creatively engaged. So I think you kind of, you know, we have to look for ourselves. What does it mean? Personally, for me, accepting things as they are is kind of knowing fully what is the situation and from that, really engaging with it. And personally, I, you know, I mean, I would not, I don't think it's a good idea to be a doormat, but I would say if you are a doormat, I would question, why am I being a doormat? What do I do this for? Could I be otherwise? What would it mean to be otherwise? And to, in a way, creatively engage with that. Then there was a question about meditation awakens in us a greater capacity to respond to the world, internally and externally. Could you comment on some similarity and differences between mindfulness, meditation, and psychotherapy. And I think, personally, in a way, one could say that psychotherapy and mindfulness meditation deal with the same material, which is this being in this moment. 
and it deals with uh, the mind, it deals with the emotion, it deals with the sensation. So in a way, you're dealing with the same material. But I would say you deal with it in a little different way. If you do what I would call formal meditation, then the way you deal with the material is in a way to concentrate and to inquire into it. If you do psychotherapy, you deal with the material with somebody else, with the help of somebody else. And that's what I would say to me is a great difference between the two. One, you are with somebody, the other one you are by yourself and you do concentration and inquiry. And so sometimes I think people feel it's more useful to do meditation, sometimes people feel it's more useful to do psychotherapy. But nowadays there is also so many different types of therapies that sometimes psychotherapy is nearly similar to actually mindfulness meditation. I mean, if you look at some of the cognitive therapies, and now you even get mind... I mean, there is a, a book which, if people are interested, which is called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Relapse in Depression. And it was written by a free author, and one of them is a meditator. And it's very much trying to use mindfulness associated with cognitive therapy in order to do, deal with relapse in depression. Very interesting book. So in a way, sometimes they kind of a lot of people are kind of uh, in a way putting the two together in order to help people. I mean, we went to a conference in Australia about Buddhism and psychotherapy, and all the therapists there was about ten therapists there were giving workshops. All of them doing a different therapy were all Buddhists and all meditators, and. Each of them used the meditation in a different way within their own therapy, which was also very different. So I think, you know, at the moment, there is in a way a lot of work between these two, uh, these two disciplines, one could say, because, in a way, they're dealing very much with the same material. So that's that one. Then, this one. This is for Stephen, but I have been asked to do it. So, does sitting and pure awareness retreat seem very similar to this questioning approach? In all of them, a vividness, if you like, seems to arise out of an interest of bare consciousness. Could we say what we are doing here is a contemplation on consciousness? If so, would we be better employed reading Daniel Dennett's book, Consciousness explain, or is ignorance bliss in this case? Then there is either art of meditation contingently configured. I would say yes to the last bit. Uh, the thing about the thing about consciousness is, personally, I would have a little different approach to the person who wrote this. I personally do not see, but this is my bias, contemplation, meditation as contemplation on consciousness. Because I think personally, when we have this experience of a meditative state, where everything seems to be very vivid, very clear, very spacious, I think actually this is the experience of non-grasping. And I think we are conscious with or without the grasping. And 
So personally, that's the way I would look at it. Personally, I am not that terribly interested in consciousness, but I read the book of Susan Blackmore, uh, the manual on consciousness, the big one, not the short version. I looked, I read the big one. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what I learned from that manual of consciousness is that nobody has an idea what it is. (laughs) That everybody has incredible, complex, diverse, opposite theories. (laughs) And after reading it, I felt, yes, I don't need to worry about consciousness. (laughs) Since they don't know what it is, you know, it does not matter. So I think, you know, it depends which book you read. If you read a book which tells you what's what, then of course you will get a good theory of consciousness. But if you read a book which presents all the theories on consciousness, then you will realize nobody really knows what they're talking about, it seems to me. So, personally, I... But you can you know, read the book, then you'll know for yourself. That's what I would say to that one. So, this is it. Uh, I finished <laughs> with the talk and the questions. Are there, I mean, just a few minutes, are there any questions? Yes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.